Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. And uh, I preached two weeks ago why I don't drink alcohol, and it was part one, and this is the, uh, the long-awaited-for conclusion. I'm not sure if that's the case, but uh, we're going verse by verse on Sunday mornings through the book of Genesis. And I've told our church family that, that much, not all of my preaching, but much of my preaching is systematic preaching expositorily through a book of the Bible. And so we, we were in Acts for a couple of years together on a Sunday morning. We had a great time learning through there. I think I've preached through 12 or 13 of the 66 books of the Bible since I've been here these last seven years. And we're in Genesis. This one will take us a little longer, 50 chapters. Uh, but we find ourselves in Genesis chapter number 9. That was our text. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And, uh, and if you missed the first part of this message, really these two messages go together. And so I don't have time. That was a 40-ish minute, 40, 45-minute message. I don't have time to review all that we covered in that first message. Um, but we're looking at the scriptural, some of the scriptural principles of, of alcohol, and I understand in the first message, you can see some of the statistics there, I understand that even in Christendom, in churches, in pastoral leadership, that, that, that in some ways I'm in the minority in some of the things that I said in that first message, and that's all right. Um, I hope it's a help to you. I've heard great feedback. I've actually heard from several that, that said that God really used it, the, the, His Word and the preaching to cause them to reconsider some of their own personal choices and stands and, and, and approaches to this subject. And, uh, and so we preached, I, I told you on that Sunday, it would be 12 reasons why I don't drink alcohol. And we got through three. So that means this morning we need to get through nine. Are you with me? So buckle up, you listen fast, I'll talk fast, and uh, we'll try to, uh, to move through this. I, I heard about a preacher that stood up <clears throat> in the opening announcements and he said, I'm going to be bringing a message after the choir sings on the subject of alcohol. And he said, just to give you a little hint about how I feel about it, he said, I hate alcohol. He said, if I could, I would gather all the alcohol in this county up. I've seen what it's done to families. I've seen the damage. He said, I'd gather it all up, and, and I would put it in trucks, and I would, I would take it down, and I would dump all the alcohol in this county at the river. I would dump it in the river. And he sat down, and the choir stood up to sing, and they sang that morning, shall we gather at the river? And uh, I'm not sure about that, but I'm going to be preaching that this morning, not that, but I'll be preaching on this subject this morning, and I hope it'll be a help to you. I mentioned one of the reasons we're, we're hitting on this, I've made a commitment to our church family that I'm going to uh, preach systematically through the Bible. And one of my mentors, who's in his 80s, he said, Ryan, he said, be loud where the Bible's loud and be quiet where the Bible is quiet. As pastors, sometimes we have a tendency to be loud where the Bible's quiet and quiet where the Bible's loud, and that's a dangerous thing. And here's the reality. The reality is the Bible is most definitely not quiet regarding the topic of alcoholic beverages. In fact, as I mentioned in week one, alcohol is the second most warned about vice in the Bible. That's, that's, pretty, that's, that's a pretty bold statement. The first being sexual immorality, two things that have probably hurt more lives and families and relationships than anything else. And as I said in the first week, I'm going to ask you to listen with an open heart and mind, not a defensive one. This morning, as I told you the first week, I'll be sharing a combination of biblical truth, of personal experience, 
of personal opinion. Everything that I say today is not black and white biblical truth. Some of it is my personal experience. Some of it is personal opinion. Some of it is historic truth and statistics and facts. But I pray that you'll receive them as the Spirit speaks to you. And as I mentioned before, if if any of us come to church on any given Sunday with our minds made up, we're not going to let the Word of God speak into any part of our lives. What's the point of even coming? The reason we gather together is so that we'll be transformed into His image, so that as we grow in our in grace, as we grow in knowledge, as we understand God's Word better, it changes who we are and what we do. And so I, I hope the same will be true this morning. Would you look at our text with me this morning, Genesis chapter number 9. I'll begin reading in verse number 20. You follow along. You read aloud with me responsively. You read verse 21. I'll read the even verses aloud, and you'll join me on the odd verses until we get to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter number 9, beginning in verse 20. I'll start in verse 20. You join me verse 21. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years, and all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years and he died. We're going verse by verse, and we see where we find ourselves in history. God has sent the, the, the flood of Noah. God has sent the flood, a flood of judgment. And we, we, as we studied through, I think this is message number 15 or so in the series, um, we've seen that, that God preserved in God's grace and God's mercy, and Noah gets off the ark with his family and all of the animals. And the first thing he does is he worships God. And he leads his family to worship God. We're not talking about some guy that didn't love God. We're talking about a preacher of righteousness. We're talking about the one that God's word says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And yet, the deceitfulness of alcohol brings a great, uh, a great stain and mark on Noah's life and on Noah's name and really on Noah's family. And I gave you the first three reasons why I don't drink alcohol. And we looked at them from this passage. Number one, I've seen the damage that it does to families. We see that here, a generational curse upon the family of Noah, upon the the line of Canaan because of, and and you can say it was Canaan's fault, but had Noah the father never allowed that substance into his life, his son is never put in that place. And 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 so we said, number one, I've seen the why I, I personally don't drink alcohol, I've seen the damage it does to families. Number two, you never know how it will affect you. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter number 20 that wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Alcohol can be a deceitful thing. Well, I can handle that, and I can handle that, and it doesn't really change me, and it doesn't, but you never know how it will affect you. Number three, I said there is a plethora of scriptural warnings against it. We've included some of those, not all of them, in your handout this morning, but the reality is we covered scores of verses in week number one, and and then continuing on this morning, the continuation of that message. Number four, again, biblical reasons, personal reasons, practical reasons. Number four, why I don't drink alcohol. Number four, it is poor stewardship. It is poor stewardship. Poor stewardship of what? I would say, first and foremost, of our money. It's poor stewardship of our money. Simply put, alcohol is expensive. 
And the more you get into it, the more, the more fine-tuned your palate becomes, the nicer the stuff and the more expensive that it gets. My wife and I enjoy a couple of times a year on special occasions to go to a nice restaurant. And often we'll go to a nice restaurant and I'll ask, depending on where we're at or if it's a really fancy place, I'll ask the waiter, I'll, I'll say, have you guys had anybody famous come through here? And I'll talk about it. Or I'll say, I'll say what's the most expensive tab you've ever had as you, at a table that you've served in this restaurant? And I've heard answers ranging from $10,000 for a meal to over $100,000. There was a, a steakhouse we were at at the Bellagio in Las Vegas. The waitress told me over $100,000 for a meal. Do you know what? In all of those cases, you know what the vast majority of the, 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 the cost of those meals was? Alcohol. I don't care how nice the steak is, 10 or 20 people aren't eating $10,000, $20,000 worth of steak. It doesn't, I don't care, it's Wagyu, A5, hand massaged, fed beer, whatever they do over there. It's not, it's not getting to that level. Alcohol is expensive. In 2010, alcohol misuse cost us $249 billion in America. What did Solomon say in Proverbs chapter number 23, verse number 21? He said, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty. When we allow, when we live to feed our flesh, to feed our sinful desires, it has an adverse financial effect on us. Solomon also said in Proverbs 21, verse number 17, he that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Not only is it poor stewardship of our money, but it's poor stewardship of our bodies as well. Alcohol, is poor, alcohol use is poor stewardship of our bodies as well. Over time, the effects of alcohol, and you can study the statistics for yourself, and by the way, I know the studies that one glass of red wine a day, you go back and read it, the longer we go, actually newer studies are coming out that are saying much of those, it's, that, that it doesn't quite have the health benefits that we were told in recent years, but over time, consuming large amounts of alcohol negatively affects our health. It puts us at a greater risk of liver disease, heart disease, depression, strokes, as well as various cancers, high blood pressure, and sleeping disorders. But it helps me relax. It kind of sounds like one of those commercials for medicine where all of the symptoms that you get by taking it sound worse than the thing you're taking the medicine for. The announcer comes on, order your alcohol now, this medicine will help you relax but puts you at a higher risk for liver disease, heart disease, depression, stroke, and various cancers. Don't delay. Order now. Probably not. You can, again, study the statistics yourself. 95,000 people, we're told, die from alcohol-related causes annually. It is the third leading cause of preventable death. Alcohol, the third leading cause of preventable death. You know what it is? It's poor stewardship of our lives, of our bodies. According to a 2014 World Health Organization report, among people ages 15 to 49, alcohol misuse is the first leading risk factor for premature death or disability. Ages 15 to 49, alcohol, according to the World Health Organization, alcohol misuse is the first leading risk factor for premature death or disability. Worldwide in 2016, 14% of deaths among people aged 20 to 39 are alcohol attributable. In 2019, 28% of driving fatalities were alcohol related. Think about that. 
One of every four traffic fatalities had alcohol. More than one of every four had alcohol involved in that fatality. What is it? This is not even a biblical thing, although the the poor stewardship financially had some biblical verses. This is just a practical truth. It's just bad stewardship of our bodies, of our health, of our lives. Why do we tell expectant mothers not to drink alcohol? Why would that be? We encourage them not. Why? Because we understand it adversely affects the health of a newborn baby. Number five, drunkenness often finds itself in bad places. Reasons why I don't drink alcohol, drunkenness often finds itself in bad places. In 43 years of life, you know where I've never found myself? I've been alive 43 years. I don't know how many years God's going to give me, but I'm probably at best around the halfway point of my life. I might be on the latter half of my life, living at least probably half of my life or maybe a little bit more. You know where I've never found myself? I've never found myself taking a field sobriety test. I've never found myself in handcuffs for driving under the influence. I've never found myself in bed with a person that I don't remember meeting. I've never found myself in the hospital after a bar fight. I've never found myself under arrest for domestic violence. I've never found myself embarrassed by a social media video of my crazy actions while under the influence. Now, other crazy actions not under the influence, I can't say, but. I've never found myself confused on a Saturday morning about what I did on Friday night. I've never found myself throwing up on a college campus or passed out in a frat house. I've never found myself being ushered out of a sports stadium after a drunken fight. There is no debate that drunkenness often accompanies violence, sin, immorality, pain, confusion, regret, nausea, broken relationships, child abuse, and the list goes on. Simply put, drunkenness produces debauchery. It's, it's, that's, that's an indisputable fact. Talk to any person in law enforcement. So many of their calls deal with people that have done things they would have never done if they had not been under the influence of a, an illegal substance or even a legal substance like alcohol. What did Solomon tell his son? He was warning him against alcohol in his life, and Solomon said in Proverbs, he said, son, your eyes will behold strange women, and your hearts will utter perverse things. Be careful about letting alcohol in. It's going to make you have sinful desires, sinful lusts. You're going to do things you never would have done. Your heart's going to utter perverse things. You'll do things, you'll be tempted to do things you never would have done had you not allowed that substance into your life. And so it begs the question, if I knew there was a substance that often helped people find themselves in one or more of those situations on a somewhat regular basis, why would I ever want to welcome that substance into my life? Number six, why I don't drink alcohol. Number six, it doesn't take much alcohol to get drunk. Just about, and we talked a little bit more about this, about different stands on alcohol in, in the church and even in, in the lives of pastors and different takes on different verses. We talked a little bit about that in week number one. But no matter where you stand and what justification you believe Scripture gives you, I have not yet met any preacher, any pastor, I don't even know that I've met any Christian that would try to say that the Bible justifies drunkenness. What some will say is we have liberty to drink in moderation. 
Nobody, nobody that I know of, no Christian I know of, uh, says they're, they're, even those that are okay with drinking alcohol, none of them, uh, all of them, I should say, agree that, that drunkenness is strictly forbidden in Scripture. They don't argue that point. It is a sin. It's very clear in the Bible. It is a sin to get drunk. That, that's not for debate. That's clear. The question comes, the gray area, if you will, comes where some in the Bible it says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Drunk in excess, don't. And so we go there. But here's the reality. So we all agree, I think, and maybe not all of us, but every Christian I've talked to on the subject agrees the Bible is clear against drunkenness. So when are you drunk? Here's the problem. It doesn't take much alcohol to get some people drunk. So when are you drunk, and when would I be drunk? It's a sin to get drunk, but I have liberty to drink in moderation. By the way, I, I like what the preacher of yesteryear, Adrian Rogers, said. He said, moderation isn't the answer to the liquor problem, it's the cause of it. Well, I'm only going to drink in moderation. Here's the problem. Everyone starts out as a moderate drinker. I've yet to meet the person whose life has been destroyed by alcohol. I, I talked with someone this morning who said, my wife was an alcoholic for decades and mo dozens of rehab stints, and, and she struggled with it for decades. I, I talked to other people after the first message. I've yet to meet anybody whose life has been adversely affected by the effects of alcohol that said, that was my plan when I started drinking moderately. That was my plan when I took the first sip. I hoped that it would destroy my marriage. I hope it would destroy my family. I hope I would lose tens of thousands of dollars, and I apologize for my voice. It's, I feel great, but I think just different climates traveling back in, it's getting a little raspy. Thank you for putting up with it this morning. But how do we draw the line on when someone is drunk? Legally in America, we're told that the blood alcohol level of 0.08% is considered drunk driving. That's, what, that's not what the Bible says, that's not what the church says, that's what the police officer says. He doesn't care anything about the morality of it, he's just talking about when do you no longer have the right faculties to operate a vehicle. 0.08% blood alcohol level. For most people, that would be two to three beers or two to three six-ounce glasses of wine in an hour. Depending on your size and your, your tolerance, for some it's even less than that. One beer or one glass of wine for some will get you pretty close to the legal limit. So if it's two, if you have one beer or one glass of wine, are you half drunk legally? But what about commercial drivers? For commercial drivers, it's 0.04%. Why is that? Because they understand that even at 0.04%, it has the ability to affect your faculties. What about a driver under 21? It's 0.01%. Because if you're under 21, you're already dealing with maybe not all there, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but 0 0.01. And then I just drove by. Last Sunday, I was driving to LAX, or two Sundays ago. I was driving to LAX, and they, they had a billboard that said this. Buzzed driving is what? Drunk driving. Why would they say that? Well, it's just a buzz. According to the billboard on the 405, it said buzzed driving is drunk driving. Why would the world say that? Because the world understands they set that standard so low because even the world understands that a small amount of alcohol begins to affect your judgment, your thinking, your decision making. So why are we trying to justify as Christians or get as close to something that is clearly warned against in Scripture and warned against in society? 
Even if the Bible, you believe the Bible leaves room for you to regularly drink alcohol, where do you draw the line? Have you, have you ever thought about it? Where do you draw the line? And do you see the foolishness in trusting yourself to make a wise decision about when to stop drinking when you have been consuming the very thing that affects your ability to make wise decisions? Well, after I've had a few, I'll know when to stop. You're literally drinking the thing that lowers your ability to make prudent decisions. And then you're trusting, I'm going to make a prudent decision under that influence. It takes judgment to know when to stop, but good judgment is exactly what alcohol tends to erode. And for those, again, that try to liken, I hear these arguments sometimes among Christians, they try to liken drunkenness to gluttony. They say, well, just, and by the way, gluttony is a sin, and we don't hear a lot of preaching about it. That's another message for another day. But they'll say, well, just like eating isn't a sin, it's overeating that's a sin. It's not good for our health. They'll say the same thing. Drinking isn't a sin. It's over drinking. It's getting drunk. There's a couple things wrong with this line of thinking. First, you don't need alcoholic beverages to survive. You do need food. Secondly, while it's true that gluttony is a sin, and several of, as I go to pastor's conferences and I look around, several of my Baptist brethren could probably do well to be a little more temperate in our eating. I'll admit that fact. Just because you, well, Baptists don't preach against gluttony, look at that, whatever. That may be true, but finding somebody else that is sinning in another area does not justify your or my sin in our area. Well, well he's, he overeats so I can overdrink. No, he overeats so I need to follow God's word. Lastly, comparing gluttony and drunkenness is not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Too much pizza doesn't alter your consciousness. I mean, maybe a, maybe a lot of pizza, but <laughs> I've never seen anyone arrested for having one too many tacos. Okay, if I were driving on a dark road, late at night, rainy, two-lane country road, and there's another car coming at me, I'll take a fat driver over a drunk driver any day, okay? They're not apples and apples, it's not an apples to apples comparison. Number seven, alcoholic beverages are rarely used as medicine today. Why don't I drink alcoholic beverages? I mentioned in week number one that the Bible does speak in a positive light of alcohol in several instances. There are several places in the Bible where alcohol use is commended. You might not hear a lot of preachers say that, especially ones that are telling you they don't drink alcohol. But here's the reality, almost all of them are relating to medicinal use or health use. One of the few justifications and positive mentions of alcohol in Scripture is regarding the use of alcohol for medicinal purposes. Solomon said in Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. For those that try to say every time alcohol is mentioned in a positive light, it's unfermented grape juice, it doesn't work. When you're ready to die, grape juice isn't going to help you. It's using that as a form of pain relief. It's using that as a form of anesthesia. It's using that as a form of heavy hearts, a depressed person, some, some sort of medicinal help to help their heavy heart forget their poverty. Grape juice doesn't make you lose your memory. This is speaking of alcohol. This, this passage here is speaking of that. And we need to understand, by the way, that that's Proverbs 31, 6 and 7, the two verses right before it. 
is a command from King Lemuel's mom that, that kings shouldn't drink alcohol, by the way. So right before that, she says, be careful of alcohol, but there are some times where it might be okay to use, and what it's talking about, it's talking about what we might use as anesthesia or pain medication, morphine when someone is in their final hours in hospice. Do you remember the old Western movies? Any of you grew up watching old Western movies? Let me just see. Black and whites. What did they do? John Wayne shot somebody or some cowboy got shot. You remember what they did? They pulled out the whiskey bottle, didn't they? And they gave him a shot. They poured a little in there. Why? For antiseptic, to numb the wound, and to numb the pain so they could pull the bullet out. That's what this is talking about, using it for medicinal purposes. Today, I have NyQuil. I took some last night because I didn't want to uh, over, over, uh, I needed to sleep a little better, and my wife said, your voice is sounding raspy. I don't know what's going on, but you need to take that. So I I said, yes, ma'am. We have NyQuil and Tylenol and Motrin if I need pain relief. By the way. You need to be careful of prescription drugs. There are people that have destroyed their lives with an addiction to prescription drugs. Anything that that we consume that controls us, that changes our thinking, that creates an addiction, Christians, really all people, but especially Christians, need to be on guard for. So I I don't need to keep a fifth of whiskey on hand for when I get a headache. My wife has Tylenol. After telling Timothy that a pastor shouldn't allow alcohol to control him in, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives him another piece of advice in chapter 5. He says in 1 Timothy 5, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Is Paul contradicting himself? In chapter 3 he said a pastor shouldn't have alcohol in his life. Then he says, well, there are some people that would, that would say that it may be talking about non-alcoholic, but what, either way, it's talking about a purpose that we don't use it for. In those days, dysentery and other conditions were common because of water filtration problems. So Paul tells Timothy to use wine as a cleansing agent so that he can stay properly hydrated. I mentioned it in the first message, I have a 67-page thesis written in the 1800s, a doctrinal thesis talking all about ancient wine and the fermentation process and how it's different today than it is now. Several of you emailed me and I sent that along to you. If you're interested, shoot me an email. I'll be glad to send you that document. But what it shows us is what they were using was far different than what we have today. And and again, it's debated what's being talked about here. We use the word wine in, in the English language to always mean fermented grape juice, pretty much. When we say wine, we all think of an alcoholic beverage. That was not the case in the Bible. There are three or four different Greek and Hebrew words that were used for wine, sometimes speaking of unfermented grape juice, fresh pressed grape juice, and other times speaking of beverages with alcoholic content. That 67-page document goes into just about every one of those uses and those different Greek and Hebrew words, and you can study that if you'd like. I'd be glad to send it to you. But even if this in Timothy is speaking of a fermented version of grape juice, it would be strictly for medicinal purposes, not social events, not a buzz, not a good feeling, not a party. And, and again, you see, it was used from, we don't use it that way anymore. Just like up to a couple hundred years ago, every, every year, once a year, you would go and they would bloodlet, you would go get your arm cut, or they would put leeches on you because they believed by letting, well, we have grown in our medical capabilities. Nobody's arguing for the use of leeches. And, and the reality is that alcoholic beverage is rarely used as medicine today, which leads to my next point, number eight, 
today's alcoholic drinks are very different from Bible times. There's no disputing this. The availability is different. The variety of it is different. The volume of it is different. If you or I wanted to go get, fill our, our fridge today with alcohol, we could go within five minutes of any of our homes and get all the alcohol we wanted. The availability, the volume, the variety, all of the accessibility and the alcoholic content of it is much different. In the first century, uh, alcohol or wine was often mixed with rancid water for the sake of purifying so that people could stay hydrated. Do you remember the verse in the Bible that says, be careful to, not to tarry long at the wine? Don't tarry long. Why? Because it would take gallons and gallons and gallons of their wine to get somebody drunk. Whereas today, a few glasses within an hour could get us legally drunk to where we should not be driving. It was very different. That's why the Bible speaks of tearing long at the wine. So even if you believe the Bible allows for the drinking of alcoholic wine, it would be unbelievably different from what anyone is drinking today. Most wine, not all, there was strong drink, there were things people could get drunk, Noah got drunk, that's, so it's not all, but much of what we would, what, what's referred to as wine in the Bible would be maybe like modern day kombucha. Something that has a small alcoholic content to it, but it's so low that it's sold, any child can walk up at the store and purchase it. It's not, and by the way, I'm such a teetotaler, I don't even drink kombucha. Not because I have a biblical conviction against it, because it smells like feet. That's why I don't drink it, but <laughs> my wife loves it, and she's a pastor's kid. You got to watch out for those pastor's kids. But the alcoholic content of much, and again, this is, this is proven fact you can study out, is very different than what we justify today. Last summer, our family was in Fredericksburg, Virginia, visiting George Washington's birthplace, this, this city that was around before we were a nation, an amazing history, Martha Washington's, um, her, her, I think her mom's house and cemeteries and all of this stuff. And so we were there, and I purchased the ticket to tour these historic buildings. Because there's nothing that five kids ages 7 to 19 want to do when it's 100 degrees outside with 100% humidity more than visit historic museums. <laughs> Trust me on this, parents. They'll love you for it. So I purchased these, and we went into one of the shops. The only reason they were happy to go into one of these places is because there was air conditioning in them. And one of them was the apothecary. I think we have a picture of our guide there, the apothecary. He was explaining, they actually had leeches in here, he was explaining some of the medicine of that day, what they would have used for different things, and, and, and how people died so much more. And one of the things he explained to us is that even in the 17th century, just a few hundred years ago, everyone, everyone, including children, drank wine nearly all day, every day. And here, you know what he said? He told us it was the only way that people could stay properly hydrated because they didn't have, they would get sick from, from drinking unfiltered water. The only difference was that even drinking this all day, their wine would not lead one to drunkenness. It was so watered down. There was only enough alcoholic content in there to kill anything that would make the water unhealthy. That was just a few centuries ago. That was based on American history in the 17th century. Here's the reality. What we as Christians and even as pastors have justified in moderation is often very different in the alcoholic content than what they would have had in Bible times. 
Simply put, an alcoholic beverage today is not the same as in ancient times compared to what they had in Bible days. Just about everything we have today is strong drink. Number nine, why don't I drink it? It is addicting. It is addicting. God's word teaches us that as believers, we should not be controlled by anything outside of the spirit of God. Any addiction. I'm a workaholic, an addiction to work, an addiction to money, an addiction to shopping, an addiction to pornography, an addiction to prescription drugs, an addiction to illicit drugs, an addiction to a physical relationship, to, to, to unhealthy, uh, intimate relationships, whatever that, and, and because of our sin nature, all of us are prone to trying to find comfort and peace and joy in things that were never intended to give them to us, trying to fill that God-sized hole in our lives and in our hearts with man-made things. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you see the contrast Paul makes? He says, don't let some man-made thing control you. Let the Spirit of God control you. And may I just stop and say, practically speaking, logic would dictate that if you are controlled to even some small percentage by an outside substance, that is a percentage that you cannot be controlled by the Spirit. He says, don't be drunk with wine, whereas excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Believers should not be under the control of anything but the Spirit of God. What are alcoholic beverages sometimes called? Spirits. Isn't that interesting? You ever see that on a liquor store? Spirits inside. Why, why, why were they called that? Why do we call alcoholic beverages spirits? Because they come in and begin to control us, to change us, to lower our inhibitions. In this passage, Paul makes a comparison and teaches us that we're going to be under the influence of something either the flesh or the spirit, and he's telling us don't let anything outside come in. Walk in the spirit, he says in Galatians, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let the spirit control you, not your flesh. Let God's word control you, not your wisdom. Let God's plan control you, not your plans. Let the spirit of God control you. Paul was, he said, he was addicted to the ministry. He used that word. That's the only addiction we see spoken of positively in the Bible was Paul said, I'm addicted to loving God, living for God, and serving people for God. That's my addiction is the Spirit of God. You say, well, I'm not addicted to alcohol. I can stop anytime. Then do it. Great. Prove that you don't need that outside substance to make your life better. Number 10. Number 10, why I don't drink alcohol. I don't want to be a stumbling block to others. For me, I don't want to be a stumbling block to others. It's possible that some in this room, and maybe it would be me. I told you my testimony of my mom with alcohol and, and, and marijuana before it was legal in California growing up with that in our homes. I gave you the testimony of my dad and stepmom, both having been in, in AA for over 35 years, I think. Uh, in my, there's some history of alcoholism in my home, in my family, my immediate family. But maybe, maybe I could control it. Maybe I could be temperate. Maybe Tiffany and I could enjoy uh, one glass of wine at dinner, and it just enhances the flavors of the food and, and relaxes a little bit and takes the edge off, and it wouldn't lead to all of the super negative. Maybe it could. 
And maybe for some, you've had it in your life for decades, and you say, Pastor Ryan, there really isn't a whole lot of negative impacts in my life. You're saying all of these things, that's not my case. Maybe I could consume alcohol in limited quantities for decades with no major negative impact in my life, but here's the reality. My life shouldn't be the only consideration. Paul makes this clear in several places, but specifically in Romans 14. I'm going to be preaching a Sunday night series soon from the chapter of Romans 14, talking about those, our sacred cows in our lives. But look what Paul had to say about our actions in the areas where maybe we can do some things of Christian liberty. Notice what he says in Romans 14. He says, for none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. What is he saying? Your actions don't only affect you. But judge this rather, here it is, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Let us therefore follow after the things which make peace. Seek unity with believers. Don't fight over stupid stuff. And things wherewith one may edify another. Are my actions building up other believers or are they tearing them down? Here's what he says, for meat, something that you enjoy. Now he's talking here, believers had been saved, and some had liberty to eat meat that had been offered to idols because they realized the idols were dead, but others, in their conscience, they couldn't eat meat offered to idols. And here's what Paul says, for meat, destroy not the work of God. Don't die on that hill. Even if you have liberty to do it, if it's not good for your fellow believer, don't do it. He says, he says uh, all things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. There are some people that can't do that in good conscience. It is good neither, look what he says, it is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. He specifically mentions drinking wine here. And he said, you ought to consider by you posting that social media post of the liberty you have with that alcohol, is there another believer that maybe struggles with it in ways that are different to you and they're trying to get victory that that might be something that hurts them, that affects them negatively? Oh, well, maybe if so-and-so does it, I guess it's okay. And maybe they can't control it like you can. That's what's called a stumbling block. Your actions matter. Your actions might cause someone else to trip up in a way that you're not tripping up. That's what he says. And he specifically mentions, don't drink wine if it causes a brother to stumble. Our actions matter. You don't know, but you may be drinking at a meal in front of someone who is struggling mightily with addiction. And so an immature believer would say, well, I can control alcohol. It's not hurting me. And so we'll ask the question, is it hurting me? And if the answer is no, then I don't do it. And so the question isn't only will it hurt me. The question should also be, will it hurt others? Instead of asking, will it hurt me, it would be better to ask, will it hurt others? By the way, this isn't only true in alcohol. This is true in every area of Christian liberty. Don't be a selfish Christian, well, I can do this, I can get away with that, I can go up to that line, it doesn't hurt me, I'm more spiritually mature. Instead of just asking, will it hurt me, ask, will it hurt others? And even better is not just to ask, will it hurt others, but a better question is, will it help others? By me doing this, am I edifying someone else to draw closer to God? What is Paul saying? No man lives unto himself, no man dies unto himself. We are not islands. 
Our actions matter. Our Christian testimony matters. And so be careful of that. He tells us to do that which is edifying for others, not pleasing to self. It's possible I could be dining with someone who has come out of alcoholism. That's not me. But I could be, and my Christian liberty to drink in front of them could lead them to maybe think they could control it as well and could lead them back into hurtful and destructive actions. One member last week, she's here in the room, she told me, I got saved as a, I want to say maybe 19, 20, 21, and I had been to some parties and had alcohol in my life, and I got saved, and as a new believer, I had other Christians around me that said, hey, join me at Huntington Beach, our church is having a beer and hymns night. Come down to the beach, and we're going to drink beer, we're going to drink together and sing hymns. Think about the irony. We're going to sing about letting the Spirit of God control us while we drink something that that allows something else to control us. But you know what she said? It was super confusing for me as a new believer. Some things that I was trying to get out of my life, other Christians were opening the door to say, this is fine in your life. What were those? And I'm not saying those are bad Christians. I'm not saying they're not going to heaven. What I'm saying is, I don't believe they seriously considered Romans 14. How could this action that might not hurt you hurt someone else? Are your actions edifying others or causing them to stumble? Number 11. Number 11. Why don't I drink alcohol? I don't want to hurt my testimony. Let me just ask you this morning. If this afternoon or tonight after church, by the way, I'd encourage you to be back for church tonight. I've seen the order of service three or four times a year. We do a night of worship. If you enjoyed singing and you're like, man, I wish we'd sing more. We do that a few times a year. And tonight's one of those times. We're going to be reading much scripture tonight. Uh, we'll sing about a dozen songs together. It's going to be a beautiful service. But what if tonight after the service, we came and we sang praises to God and you went to the Irvine Spectrum and my wife and I were at Javier's. And we were sitting at the bar at Javier's there, that upscale Mexican restaurant. And you saw me and Tiffany drinking shots of tequila, a couple margaritas there. Just the reaction. Would that affect your impression of us? What if you were with your kids? Hey, there's Pastor Ryan. Oh, that's not Pastor Ryan. Oh, look at that. (laughs) Seriously. Now, some of you might say it wouldn't bother me at all. But you know, for most of you, that would impact my testimony. It would cause you to wonder. Is that, is that, is, 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 what other areas is he maybe not as strong spiritually? Is he the right leader for our family? Here's the reality. It's not only pastors that have testimonies to uphold. It's not only pastors whose actions impact others. Some of your social media or mine impacts your children and mine. I don't want to hurt my testimony. Pastors aren't the only ones whose testimonies matter. Number 12, why don't, why I don't drink alcohol. Leaders are warned about alcohol all through Scripture. Leaders are warned about alcohol all through Scripture. In the New Testament, God gives multiple admonitions regarding the use of alcohol for those in spiritual leadership in the church. In Titus, he says of the qualifications of a bishop or a pastor, Titus chapter number one, verses six through nine, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless. Now, by the way, blameless doesn't mean perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm sinful, just like you. I can't forgive your sins. You don't come confess to me, and I I have some special access. No, you can come boldly to the throne of grace just like I can. But I am held to a higher standard that if I'm going to lead the house of God, I have to also be able to lead my own house. 
Now, that doesn't mean that my children will never sin, and blameless doesn't mean without, without sin. What it means as you study that Greek word is nothing sticks. No accusation of great impropriety sticks to my name. It, that, that I don't, I'm not a person with a great stain of he's dishonest here, and he has embezzled funds there, and he's been unfaithful to his wife there. No, he's blameless, these qualifications. He said, blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry. Notice what it says, not given to wine. No striker, not always looking for a fight. Not given to filthy lucre, money is not my priority. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, which means to be serious-minded. Alcohol, that's why we, we use the word sober. Now, this isn't directly speaking of alcohol, but we use the word sober to mean without alcohol in our lives. Why? Because we can be more serious-minded. A pastor, a bishop, is to be sober, just, holy, temperate, self-control, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. What is it saying here? My life matters if I'm going to be a, a, a leader for God in God's work. My choices matter. By the way, it's not only to pastors that some of these admonitions are given, just to older ladies in the church. You know what, what, what it says in Titus? The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers. They shouldn't always be lying and making stuff up about people. Not given to much wine. And again, sometimes people will use that, see, it's much there, so I can be given to some wine. You're going to have to figure that out. For me, I don't want to get close to it. Teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, serious-minded, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That's not even talking about leaders in the church as far as pastoral leadership. That's just saying godly older ladies. By the way, it says to the older men in that same passage, likewise, teach the men. You can go back and read it in Titus 2. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this to pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, a bishop, that is the pastor, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, an ability to share God's word, not given to wine. So why, why did I give you the statistic that more than 40% of evangelical pastors are given to alcohol in their lives? I, I don't know how you get around it especially in my position. No striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. He needs to be a man of good reputation, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons, these are not people that are paid by the church. These are just faithful, godly men that serve the church. People that are serving the church, the deacons must be grave, not double-tongued, not gossips, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. And we could go on and on. There are other places. But multiple times, leaders in the Bible, both we're going to see a couple in the Old Testament and we're going to wrap it up, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we're warned be careful of letting alcohol into your lives. And yet, this in many churches in Orange County, I would be in the minority preaching what I'm preaching for spiritual leadership. Why is that? We've allowed the flesh 
and our desires for moderation or tolerance, or I don't want to be old-fashioned, or I don't want to, whatever it might be, to overtake the commands of Scripture. By the way, for us, it's why alcohol use is prohibited for our ministry leadership. We've had people on our staff fired from their positions for having alcohol in their lives. Those on our paid staff and our deacons are prohibited to partake in alcohol. It's grounds for termination on our staff. We might be old school, we might be out of touch, but I'd rather err on the side of holiness and purity than on the side of carnality and fleshliness. Pastor, you're taking too hard of a stand. It says much wine, moderation, excess. Here's the reality. I think there are enough voices out there telling Christians it's okay to have a little that I don't mind being one of the voices that stands up and says, I'd ask you to consider, is there any good thing coming of it in your life? And if I get to heaven and I found out that I was too far on one side or the other of the, of the situation, I was, too, I was too strong on one, I would, I'll, I'll feel better if I find out I was too strong, that my stand led people to less alcohol than, they, than was allowed in their lives, rather than I opened up the door to more alcohol than they should have had in their lives. I'm okay with that. We're almost done. You've listened well. In the Old Testament, we see many warnings to those in leadership regarding alcohol. I'm only going to share a few. In Proverbs chapter number 31, he says, uh, his mom speaking to King Lemuel, give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. Do you see it? Immorality, wrong relationships with women, wrong relationships with wine, the two things that have destroyed more lives than anything. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings, those in leadership, to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Son, I want you to be careful. If you're in leadership, you allow that in, it's going to change your wisdom, your ability to make wise decisions. Isaiah says, woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Those people that have great leadership, be careful about letting this into your life. To the Levites, those that served at the temple, God gives this admonition, do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. There were four people groups in the Old Testament that were commanded not to drink. Priests, the Levites, prophets, Nazarites, they were called to be set apart from the world. Kings, isn't it interesting that God uses some parallels and some analogies to New Testament believers to some of those groups? We're called prophets and priests in the New Testament. Christ has made us that. He calls us, come out, be, be, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Kind of like the Nazarite, I want the Christian, the believer to be different than the world. Some of those parallels in the Old Testament are the same that he likens Christians. Conclusion, in summary, after 21 pages of sermon notes over the two weeks, countless hours of study, scores of Bible verses shared, and scores more that I could share, I believe, I believe, now, again, I told you some of this is personal opinion, I believe a Christian is wise to consider abstaining from all alcoholic beverage. As a pastor of one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in America said in 2010, it's not a matter of Christian liberty, it's a matter of wisdom. If the Bible warned about it over and over and over again, why play with something that has the potential to ruin your life or the lives of someone you love dearly? Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. He said, there are some things as a Christian that I can do that I shouldn't do. 
They're okay to do, but they're not best to do. That's what he said. He said, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. He said, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Later, a couple verses down in that same passage, he says this, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost that you have of God, and you are not your own. You're bought with a price. And here's what he said, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. You're not your own. So there are some things you can do, he said, that you shouldn't. Why? Because everything we do in our body and our spirit should glorify God. Now that should change, I'll, I'll, I'll grant it again, that should change some of us Baptist preachers' eating habits. It should. But the fact that some Baptist preachers have some bad eating habits doesn't justify the use of another sinful substance in the life of a believer. Can you honestly, can you honestly make the following statement? Alcohol draws me closer to God, strengthens my testimony, and makes me live more like him. Seriously. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Can you make the statement, alcohol draws me closer to God, strengthens my testimony, and makes me live more like him? If not, you may want to reconsider that which you've allowed into your life and home. By the way, we can pull the word alcohol out and put anything else in there and ask the exact same question. Does it draw me closer to God, make me more like him, and strengthen my testimony to others? Some of us, it's easy for me to preach this because alcohol is not a temptation in my life. I, I don't, it's not a part of my life and it hasn't been for decades. I drank some as a little kid. I told you some of that story in the first week but it's never been something I struggle with. But here's the reality. There are other things that I've allowed into my life that maybe are sinful and maybe inherently aren't, but they're not drawing me closer to God. They're not making me more like him. They're not strengthening my testimony. And just like I'm challenging you to consider that in your life, I should consider that in those areas of my life. Rather than asking, can I do this? Ask yourself, should I do this? Not what can I get away with, what is most pleasing to Christ? It's a great question to ask in every decision, in every priority, in every choice, in every action in our Christian lives. The last verse I give you this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse number 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, would you read the last phrase with me? Ready, begin. Do all. Let's read that whole verse aloud together. Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all. Wherever you work, do all to the glory of God. Whatever your hobbies, do all to the glory of God. However you spend your money, do all to the glory of God. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If alcohol is a part of your life, are you doing it to the glory of God? You don't have to convince me of that, by the way. I'm not going to answer for, for your actions. I'll answer for how, my actions and how I led my church, this church and God's church and my family. You don't have to convince me, but I'll tell you, I can't, me personally, I can't drink alcohol to the glory of God, so I've brought it out of my life. I watched what it did in my family. I've seen many others that can't, so that's why I preached this two-part message. Would God be pleased if some in this room made a decision to get rid of maybe alcohol or something else that I didn't even mention today, but you've allowed into your life? A website, a relationship at work, 
a person you've been texting, uh, somewhere you've been spending your money, would God be pleased if you stopped and said, I'm not doing that to the glory of God. That social network is not to the glory of God, so I'm gonna get it out of my life. I think God would be. Isn't it worth it to make some changes in whatever these areas are? Be not drunk with wine, Paul said. We're in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. He didn't just say, get some wrong things out of your life. He said, get some good things into your life. He didn't just say, stop doing this. He said, replace it with that. That thing that's drawing you away from God, get it out of your life so that you can put more of God into your life. Replacing that with something better, the time, the money, the energy spent on fleshly things, use them for spiritual things. I hope this two-part message has been a help. Some of it, I think, was very clear scriptural instruction. Others was personal opinion, personal experience in counseling families, in my own family. Some of it was just statistics and and just logical thought, but I hope that it caused all of us, you don't owe me an explanation for anything that you do, but God said, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And you've got to answer that in your life. And it's not just in the area of alcohol, it's in everything we've allowed into our lives. Is this to the glory of God? That's why we're here, is to bring Him glory. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we are, Is it bringing honor and glory to Him? Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.